Hello everybody and welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me Michael Tingsa. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders and entrepreneurs in the hospitality industry to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out. The kind, the both, and for ease of customers, love and support. In today's podcast, we are joined by the Managing Director of Bakerman, Anthony Pryor. Bakerman is one of Brighton's most loved destinations for breakfast, brunch and lunch. It's a well-known and well-loved Brighton success story. Before working for Bakerman, Anthony gained most of his experience working in the music and event industry. I had a great conversation with Anthony about how and why he made his move from music to food, why having the right people on board is crucial for long-term success, and what his outlook is on the industry for the coming few years, as well how to build a business that makes an impact on the local community. So grab that coffee and stay put and listening to Anthony's great story. Hello and welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast, Anthony. And we've really been looking forward today at having you here on our podcast. We sit at Platform 9 in the, in the Snark in Hove. We're going to talk all about Bagel Man and your journey in a moment. But first, once again, welcome. Really looking forward today and uh, hope that we're going to have some exciting next hour in front of us. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Let's just uh, kick off with the easy one. So... Your journey, where do you come from? I know you don't come, you're not born and raised into to the food business. You mm. came from, from the outside world and, <laughs> and into it. So let's hear a little bit about where you're from and uh, what you've been doing up to you entered food about eight years ago, I think. That's right, yeah. So um, yeah, in the outside world, before getting involved in Bagel Man in 2011, I worked for a long time in the entertainment industry from the late 90s, really. I arrived in Brighton in the mid-90s, and by the late 90s, I was involved in running club nights. That turned into running a record label of our own. That just developed over about a decade, really, into 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 a kind of business that we grew, and we ran events across the South Coast and in London and around the country. And that was a lot of fun, I guess, fast-forwarding all the way to the kind of mid-2000s, about 2007. I kind of started to fall out of love with it a little bit, if I'm honest. The kind of passion for it had gone and... I wasn't quite so much enjoying the music that I was surrounded by because we were having to make more commercial decisions. And I just got to the stage where I'd kind of had enough in that world and found myself looking for something new, which was how we uh, arrived at, eventually arrived at acquiring the Bagelman business in 2011. Most people will say that that sounds like an insane move, going into restaurants or food businesses just because you think that that's, that's a better move than you did before. So what was it that, that tricked you and you thought that you actually you could take something from the music and entertainment industry into a food business or a cafe and, and, and bagel business? What we recognised with the Bagel Man business when we were looking for an opportunity was actually lots of similarity between that and the things which I was familiar and comfortable with. So there was a strong brand, there was lots of loyalty around the business. It was local, it was cherished by local people, it was widely supported and well-known. And they were all things that I was really familiar with from the parties and events that I'd been running. I just could see I had a vision for that business being all of those things and more and taking it further. Yeah, there was a huge gap between my experience in terms of retailing and running a bakery. And yes, I did go overnight from being a kind of recovery music promoter to being a baker and an MD of a retail and bakery business. Um, and there was lots I had to learn. But there was there were also sometimes quite oblique links, but there were links between what I could see the Bagelman business offered and what my experience lent. 
I think um, I think in reality, it was quite a long time before I was able to deploy my experience into this business because this business actually took a couple of years for us to get it into a stage where we could think about the brand and think about the product and so on because actually there were cultural things in the business that needed to be fixed and it was a it was a bit dated when we took over so there was more modernization than we realized had to be done to put the building blocks in place so it took a little bit longer than i expected to kind of turn that corner so taking that i can see there's some clear links around the experience and so on is there any specific things where you thought what i've learned here in in the music industry like skills are very you know transferable into into the retail bakery and uh, cafe environment i think I'd, abs- I'd absorbed lots of great experience from working with great venue managers actually people who were really focused on customer service so i was very much focused on the entertainment the production the customer experience from a from an atmosphere and a musical content point of view but i was lucky enough to work with some great managers of venues who were really focused on customer service and the operation and i absorbed lots of their knowledge across the years which I then carried into what we're doing with Bagelman but what I've more recently realized is that the thing that I have taken into Bagelman which has possibly had the greater impact has been the culture the the actual kind of working culture and the values of of people the young people coming to work for us that we now have because I realized a few years ago now that I was trying to recreate the kind of optimism and the positivity that we had back then. We had lots of young people working for us who were just really proud of their work. They wanted to, they, they would look forward to coming to work, whether they're working on the bar or whether they're like volunteer helping us run an event or run the record label or something like that. They were just really proud of their work and they were really grateful of the experience. And there was just this always this atmosphere of positivity and engagement and it was lacking in this business I realized that I wanted to recreate that atmosphere and that culture so just kind of set about doing that really and I made some mistakes in the early days to start with I tried to tell people how to behave I tried very much to tell people what our culture was that's not how we're going to do things we're going to do it like this we're going to do it like this but that is often met with resistance you have to explain yourself too many times over and I realized through just trial and error really that actually the only way to establish the culture is to just lead by example and just continue being the culture that you want to see in the business so I just carried on behaving positively behaving with optimism and just encouraging people to that that's how we were going to behave in this business and bit by bit one by one people got on board and we did turn the culture around into something now that we're really proud of and it's kind of proved now in things like looking at our staff turnover numbers where we've more than halved our staff turnover over the last couple of years by really focusing on the culture in the business and bringing people into the business who share the desire for that culture means that everybody's really happy and comfortable with their colleagues and they stay because they're having a satisfying time at work. Yeah, those two things are two things that I've brought forward out of that world. One is just absorbed experience from other good managers around me. And the other would be the culture that I didn't really realise I was taking with me at the time. But now reflecting back on it, I can see that that was what, something that I'd learned and I wanted to re- recreate. At what point, because it's quite interesting you're saying here, uh, we are in a situation in general in retail and food and restaurants where you can say it's tough out there. Yeah. And uh, we call it the perfect storm. We had hospitality mavericks, you know, prices going up, problems around workforce, getting enough of it, good enough people, a lot of political uncertainty as well. And mm. then uh, and the market has over-exaggerated mm. with, with a lot of concept. Then you say that uh, one of the solutions is, is, is culture or engagement, some people mm. call it as well. Mm. And, and many, many, 100% of the leaders, if you ask them in the big CGA, so that's done recently said this is important but only 36 of them were really confident that their organization was actually able to do this because mm. it's not 
and I know that as well. It's not an easy thing to do to just to create and you're an engaged on strong a strong culture. Can can you share a bit about what was concrete that you did when you started to see that you couldn't actually force people to be part of a culture, but mm. you needed to show the way? Well, what's the for? things you put in place in your organization we got really clear on what our values were as a business and we just started living our values so we worked out who we wanted to be as an organization and just started doing real practical things on the ground that put our money where our mouth was going all the way back a few stages we kind of identified our core stakeholder groups and thought carefully about each stakeholder group and what we could do to make their experience of doing business with us a little bit better. So thinking about our staff, our suppliers, our community, the planet, and just working out an action that we could put into place for each one of those stakeholder groups that would just improve things for them and therefore for us a little bit so that we, we, we could just show evidence that we were living these values that we thought were important, that we think are important. And I think that started to show to our team that we meant our values. They weren't just something that we wrote on the wall and forgot about, that these were things that we were actually genuinely going to apply to the way that we go about doing business. That was successful to a certain extent, but it kind of it improved the engagement with, I would say, a cross-section of the teams who were, who were interested in things like, let's let's take the compostable packaging, for example. So our action towards improving the, the, our environment was to, was to remove plastics from all the packaging, so switching all of our coffee cups, all the disposable packaging to compostable items. And you could see across the team, you know, of our 50 people, there would be 10 or 15 people who were really motivated and inspired by that. And they would be kind of lit up by the project and they would make sure that their colleagues around them were also getting on board and helping with those initiatives and talking confidently and positively to our customers about it. So that our customers knew that we were taking this action as a business because, you know, there's much choice out there and consumers are increasingly conscious of where they're spending their money. So it's important for us to share these stories with the consumers too. So the staff are on board, they get it, they start talking about it positively over the counter. So there's customers then understand what actions we're taking so each one of these things were small building blocks you're thinking about our community as well and putting in place initiatives to help homeless people raising a bit of money for homeless charities and inviting some community groups to send people who are kind of coming out of you know rehab programs into our recruitment process so hopefully try to find work for people focusing on skills development for young people knowing that people are coming out of school and college with without much soft skill I don't really like that term, but kind of human skills stuff, communication and leadership skills. They were coming to us with with none of those things, maybe straight from home, maybe straight from school. So working quite a lot on developing the personal development of young people so that, you know, you might have an 18, 19 or 20 year old who's possibly in their first job. And we're teaching them to make food and we're teaching them to make coffee and we're teaching them about food safety and compliance. But we're also teaching them about communication and leadership and how to be led and how to fit into a team so that they function better in our team. But also we're thinking about their career journey when they're 25, 26, 27 and they're sitting in a job interview that really matters to them at that point and they're asked a question about how they lead or how they like to be led, they can give a confident answer or they can make an example of a time when they worked in this bagel bar in Brighton and they were taught how to communicate properly. So hopefully enhancing their job prospects at the same time. Yeah, all these things helped us to kind of display the values, like build the values into what we were doing. None of them were really game-changing, though. They were all just small building blocks. The, the one thing that we changed two years ago now which which was a game changer was the way that we recruit so we'd done the typical thing as you do in in our world you a poster goes in the window an advert goes on gumtree or whichever online you know service you want to use and loads of cvs come through the door you start reading cvs and you think this is just full of bs and you know your cvs just you know anyone can write anything they want on them so it's 
you know, a mind-numbing process reading CVs. And inevitably, people tell you what they want you to hear. We just decided that we were going to do it completely differently. So we binned the CV and we stopped looking at CVs in January 2017. We introduced a recruitment workshop instead. So we make it completely open. Anybody who's looking for work can sign up for the workshop. We normally make 20 places available. All we ask for is your name. We don't ask for a date of birth. We don't ask for any background or any experience or or anything like that. We just want people to arrive at the workshop themselves. The workshop's designed then to get to know those people. And during the workshop, we share our values as an organisation and we ask them to contribute to the workshop and share their values with us. So we're looking for alignment. We're looking for people who we feel are going to fit in well with our team. We also make the workshop a little bit challenging because it is difficult working on the shop floor in our business. It's fast paced. It's quite pressured. You need to be able to display empathy when you're under pressure. You've got to you know, put yourself in the shoes of the customers and understand what, what you know the next guy behind that customer there has probably got a slightly different set of needs to the person you just served so you continue to see having to think about all these things so we are looking for certain skill set to do that what we're not looking for is people who claim to be the best barista or claim to make the fastest sandwich or claim to know everything about the supply chain we really aren't interested in those things we just want people whose values fit the organization and when we started that process it really did change the, the way it felt to be in the business and our staff turnover rate started dropping really rapidly from a typical 100% staff turnover rate. At its best, it was about 15%. It's it's arrived now at more like 25 or 30%, which is a bit more natural and a bit more sustainable, I think. We're really proud of that because now we know that we've got young people walking through the door. We are always oversubscribed. We never have a vacancy that we can't fill. And when we fill vacancies, we often have three or four other candidates that we would love to be able to offer a job to as well because the workshop's producing good quality candidates for us. Of all the challenges that we're facing in the market right now, thankfully, recruitment and retention isn't one of them for us. And we're really proud of that because we often hear the big guys talking about their absolute nightmares they're having with filling thousands of vacancies nationwide. That's definitely not our experience. Obviously, we're not operating nationwide. We're operating in a very small market, but we're really proud that that's where we've ended up. How many units and people is it that you employ across uh, Brighton and the nearby areas? Normally about 55 staff, typically. Yeah. Uh, we've got four retail sites and a bakery. One of the retail sites is connected with the bakery, but we kind of treat it as a, as, a, as a separate site operationally. All the stores are about the same size, apart from the station store, which is physically very small, but turns over three times some of the other units that's very high volume long hours very fast paced up there and the other stores are well are two kind of what we think of as community stores and one that's more of a town center store they're all quite different in character actually but yeah it's about 55 people four retail locations and a bakery turn on the number you just said is uh, is incredible compared to the industry and you're right there's uh, the many of the big ones and also there's the, probably many of the big players are very nervous about how they're going to deal with this after Brexit. But but coming to back to, I think you said something very interesting. We were very keen to find out, you said, to what are, who are we as an organization? How do we actually live and how do we do things around here in everyday life? And then you said when you started implementing that into your recruitment process, you started to see very different results. And I've seen this happening before when you get very clear about who you want to be an organization, the mm. contribution you want to do beside making profit. Mm. Because there's no there's no business for, just for the blue eyes sake. Mm. There needs to be a profit before you can do all the other things. Then you actually start to build systems and processes that actually aligns with that. Mm. Is there any other things you did beside recruitment, which is one of the mm. core 
mm. processes and systems to get right. I agree as well mm. Mm. to run a hospitality business because if you get the people factor right yeah. or in, in control, I would say, uh, you're 50% of the way in my world. So going back to the stakeholder groups that I was talking about earlier, so on my feet here, I'm going to try and remember them. So the six key stakeholder groups, planet, consumer, staff, and then uh, environment, community and we'll have to come back to the sixth but working backwards through those for the, for the community we, we sat back and said to ourselves they're the six key stakeholder groups that we want to add value to how are we going to do that so community we say that we're adding value to the community by running these actually open recruitment workshops and making them available to anybody who's looking for work so anybody who's in our community who's been struggling for work or even for an interview they can walk through the door and they've got an opportunity of leaving with a job if they are someone who's going to fit in we've also had initiatives through the last couple of years where we've had arrangements in place with homeless charities where we've had pay it forward scheme so customers can come into the store they can pay it forward for a homeless person for hot food and drink by buying a marble effectively which goes in a pot and then a and then someone in need can come into the shop and they can with dignity order food over the counter and a hot drink and just pay for it with a marble it's very discreet and subtle and those transactions uh, have also created a little bit of a cash upside for the charity that we're linked with because we hand the net profit from those transactions over to the charity so really it's profit you know there's no profit in it for us it's just uh it's just a it's a feel-good transaction for the consumer it's helping someone who needs something to eat and it's giving a little bit of cash over to the charity thinking about planet as a stakeholder we made initiatives like switching all of our packaging to compostable we did obvious things like switching to green energy suppliers we also worked really hard to reduce our landfill and we've recently been told by Brighton Paper Round, who are our partner with recycling, that I think in the city we're in their very top few uh, retail and catering businesses in terms of ratios of recycling that we achieve. So I think we have a really surprising something like 7 or 8% of our waste ends up in landfill. The rest of it's recycled. And they're really pleased that we've achieved that working with them because it's been quite difficult having achieved that. Now, it's something else we're proud of and it will be maintained because the staff are really proud of it. And it's something that they can recognise that they do on a daily basis that's making an impact. The staff, obviously, heavily benefited by those things I've been talking about, the training and development and the way that we recruit. So as a stakeholder group, we feel like we're adding value back to their career journeys by making sure that we're developing them. We're not just we're not just expecting them to turn up for work every day. We're expecting them to turn up for work and we offer them some development and support to hopefully further their own careers. And the consumers, we believe we add value to them and their lives by offering them choice, by offering them healthy alternatives, perhaps if that's what they're looking for, by offering them a good experience and perhaps, you know, hopefully encouraging some of them to become ambassadors for the business and to kind of share the stories that we're sharing with them. And O Competitors was the sixth stakeholder group which i couldn't remember so you know we we even believe that we add value to our competitors in a kind of all boats rise with the tide mentality if we raise our game and our good competitors raise their game too then we all win you know the consumer's better off the suppliers are better off we're all doing better business because we've all got a little bit better together and i know that we benefit from good competitors around us we're inspired by the competitors that we sort of sit next to in the streets and i like to think that we inspire them to do things differently and to to you know challenge their their, their businesses as well so i feel like there's various things there that we do to continually add value back to those groups yeah there's probably other things i've forgotten but yeah there's that's that's the list that springs to mind anyway so it's quite interesting normally people look at their competitors and said we need to beat them we need to win we need to win this war against this competitor but you turn it around and say actually it's about how can we actually make each other better so we all all win all stakeholders mm. employees customers mm. and ourselves as well that's what that's a very interesting way of, of putting it because often you hear that you know competition is fierce you know you need to beat the competition and so yeah 
we're not we're not uh, we're not shy of competition, and we're really really uh, we're really switched on to how our competitors are behaving, the pricing of our competitors, you know their their range, what their offer is, how their range is developing as the seasons change. We try really hard to be completely aware of all of them but they do fall into different groups as well you know there's the very aggressive national competitors who we don't share a lot of love for if we choose to compete against them then you know absolutely we'll go and do you know it'll be on it's probably on price it's probably on quality and price but with the kind of with 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 the smaller competitors or the independent competitors there might be multiple you know local independent businesses there's a mutual respect between us all and yes we do all compete but we all we all have a kind of we all occupy a slightly different space and we offer something slightly different you know there isn't any other business in brighton that offers quite what bagel man does and we consider you know we might consider small batch in certain extents to be a competitor or the real patisserie or flower pot but we're all actually slightly different so i i think that we all contribute and we complement one another and we raise the game in brighton by all of us having a very high standard being aware of one another and being respectful of one another but i don't feel like any 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 one of us as large independents locally i you know i don't feel like we directly go and compete for one another's business i just think we exist in a fairly buoyant market we probably all end up at around the same price point you know for certain things that's just natural economics isn't it but uh, i know that we certainly don't have an aggressive competitive strategy against those businesses but we have a more competitive aggressive strategy or certainly it's an awareness i mean we can't compete against you know pret or eat or leon on volume and price and those things and and brand presence and marketing so we have to compete by being recognized as being an independent local challenger that has a bit of charm has a bit of character and is offering something a little bit different so we just have to keep telling those stories about what we're doing for the community and what we're doing for the environment, which those guys can't do. So hopefully they're the points of difference. Have you any point thinking about moving the business further away from Brighton, expanding into other cities? Has that ever been on, on the map? Or what? What? Or maybe you could say on that question also, what is the plan? What are the next step then for, for, for Bagelman? Well, we've often looked at other areas close to brighton further away from brighton we've been very close to some sites we've almost taken sites in places like lewis and worthing and then for one reason or another we've got cold feet over the location or suddenly the kind of just sense of the economy at the time or the demographic that we're seeing visiting those streets or or using shops nearby those where we've been looking we've just been uncomfortable and actually during that time the market's changed enormously in the last even in the last 12 months but in the last three years the market's almost unrecognizable now and the way that people are using the high streets and the way that people are using town centers or community shopping hubs and town centers and travel hubs is changing every month it feels like it feels like we're continually having to reevaluate where it is that we see Bagelman. at the moment we're going through a huge reevaluation once again and we're thinking very much about how the um, the side of our business that's grown enormously over the last 12 months has kind of taken us by surprise a little bit, which is the just the scale of the online direct-to-business, direct-to-consumers homes business that we built quite strongly with Deliveroo. But that's just continuing now where our Deliveroo business is starting to exceed some of our retail locations on a week-by-week basis. We're now considering actually how much retail space do we need? We pay so much rent and so much rates and fewer and fewer people are losing the high street and fewer and fewer people are actually walking down the street to buy lunch when they can sit at their desk, use an app and have choice of the whole city's catering, F&B, food and beverage choice in front of them. They're not leaving their desks. 
they're kind of doing, you know, they're ordering, instead of ordering lunch for one, going for a walk for a sandwich, they're ordering lunch for five of their colleagues around the room and it's all coming from one place. That might be from us, but it might be from someone else. So maybe that's four or five visits to our shop that we're missing now. We're really proactively rethinking our retail presence in town and how we're going to, going forward, whether it's even appropriate to have high street style stores We've moved our Deliveroo service out of... There's n- none of our retail locations have Deliveroo riders visiting in the town centre. They all go to our bakery now because we found that so many Deliveroo riders were walking into the stores with helmets on and big backpacks, creating a really poor experience for the retail customers that were there and freed the shops up of that. But it's made us realise, actually, perhaps what we just need is a really efficient town centre localised distribution hub with a community store that provides some kind of community experience and for those people who do want to walk through the store still and get a coffee and chat to someone face to face it's still there yeah just to shift shift the focus and finding ways of doing business with doing business with other businesses directly we're finding that our catering service is growing really strongly and every time we put just even a smallest amount of energy into boosting our catering service the demand is there so we're continuing to just put any every time a bit more energy into it and there's a bit more demand a bit more energy a bit more demand and so that's evidence to us that actually we're going to focus on that side, see where that takes us. It feels like that's perhaps where the kind of, I don't know, most original, the most innovative opportunity is. It would be very obvious to just keep opening shops. I don't know if I believe in that anymore. I don't have the answer either. It's one of those it's one of those work in progress things where we're just going to keep experimenting and trialling different ways of marketing the direct to consumer offerings until we land on one two or three that that work it's very interesting because this is an ongoing conversation that goes around so how do you ensure revenue streams as you go forward with very expensive property and it's probably going to take some years before the market cools down or Mm. there's an acknowledgement from from landlords that maybe it's time to offer something different in the price category but i don't think the high street is going to come back as we know it I think it's going to be a very different way. I think you are quite spot on that as a hospitality business or a restaurant business, you need to find other revenue streams. Is it the product you're selling? In your case, the bagels, or is it a sauce you're selling uh, online? And, 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 and also that uh, delivery or other delivery platform, your own delivery business is going to be an essential part of this. Delivery has definitely made an impact, but do you see there's any challenges with that model because I guess that uh, there's some things you lose a bit of control over that mm. where you normally could actually because you talked a lot about in the beginning uh, the experience yeah. be great and you just mentioned again you have riders coming into the stores and they gave a bit of you know challenges for the re- mm. retail customers mm. experience mm. so do you see any challenges with the delivery model even mm. though it's very successful from a, from a numbers point of view the delivery model is very successful from a volume point of view is really challenging from a margin point of view because they take so much it's a space that we feel that we need to be in because it's young and it's growing fast we need to certainly be on top of it and understand how it's going but we have talked about our own delivery service we've talked about you know that margin that we give to Deliveroo we could be using that to our for ourselves for our own delivery service and in doing so perhaps we can bring back some of the experience that's been lost people cherish their bagel man experience because the quality of the food and and the service but walking through the door and and the kind of you know the atmosphere and the banter with some of the staff it kind of adds something to their lunchtime that's completely eroded when 
you've got a kind of generic delivery rider turning up at your front door in a motorcycle helmet and handing you a brown bag and not really speaking to you that the, the whole experience is gone so we're really thinking about actually if if bagel man was to execute that delivery service what would the experience be and can we actually enhance that in some way this is a very current conversation for us at the moment yeah we have some interesting ideas about it which you know if we if we see them through there'll be things that you start to see on the kind of on the street literally um over the next few months as we as we start to trial some perhaps some of our own ideas yeah a lot of those things i was talking about earlier were kind of experience related things or values or culture related things which the consumer feels when they walk into the store if all we are is a dark kitchen and a bunch of delivery riders it becomes almost impossible to express those values so you could argue that they're kind of lost even though we hold them personally important to ourselves and our team do if we can't express them externally, then you start to lose them. So would we then start to lose the engagement of the people because they're not seeing the values lived that they want to that they want to be part of? So it's certainly going to be interesting. It's going to have its challenges as we as we kind of move into this new space. How do you see? Because everybody talking about this situation, we we call it the perfect storm. I mentioned it before. Mm. How do you see in general the market is, and how does that actually fit in fit in with, with Bagelman? locally here in Brighton because there is some big big movement happening right mm. now in the industry and we, mm. we've seen numbers of uh, the big players Jamie Oliver mm. Exactory mm. Eat a number of other the strata going into really challenges not only the casual dining sector now you can also see other mm. concept Passerie Valerie yeah last week into, yeah. into challenges as well how do you think this is going to impact the whole industry and where do you see all this is going our business is operating in a bit of a bubble market you know brighton is relatively buoyant compared to the rest of the country um so we're quite lucky in that respect but it's very obvious that those businesses that you've mentioned which have been expanding rapidly opening 50 stores a year for for two or three years will have been expanding into marginal towns where the high streets were probably already under pressure and where the populations were probably already starting to spend less money on casual dining and so what we're probably seeing is the effect of lots of store openings in marginally successful or marginally viable sites where they're paying lots of rent and the business wasn't there in the first place you know so lots of the stores where lots of the businesses where they're shutting lots of stores those stores have only been open for a year or two i mean there's there's just an enormous saturation it's almost the mind boggles when restaurant chain after restaurant chain or independent after independent gets bought or invested in by a pe house or a vc house and they you know go down a kind of store opening once a week for two year program I mean, a couple of years ago, we were hearing about them all the time. And I remember thinking, that can't go on. How many more Coates and Jamies and Stradas and Oaxacas can the market take? Well, we're seeing the effect, actually, not as many as everybody thought. I guess what's going to happen is just a bit of a shake shakeout. You know, the, the, the weak offerings will fall away and the, um, and the strong ones will survive, but probably with fewer locations. And like I've been talking about in terms of the delivered model, I expect that there's going to be a huge part of their business strategy as well will be to satisfy the at-home app-based delivery services in order to reach their kind of volumes and numbers that they need, they need to see. So you think there's going to be a shakeout and then the market will, in a way, find its own space? Because also one of the things I often say is there's two things for certain is that we need to eat yeah, and we're going to die. There's always <laughs> going to be work for the rest of the turn, the undertaker. It's about how you position yourself in that market. Do you see that, uh, that the scaling of restaurant is, is a done thing? It's not going to happen in, in the speed we've seen? Or do you think that uh, we're going to see another, in a couple of years, people forgot about that and then we'll we'll try to do it again? Well, that's an interesting question. I expect, actually, I expect that maybe we've seen the last of those huge waves because 
what's happened over the last year and is likely to happen over the next year is probably going to leave quite a lot of carnage for a lot of investors. The strategy is going to be different going forwards. Maybe we have seen the last wave and actually maybe the volume, the number of people now, you know, habits are changing and people are not visiting restaurants in the way that they used to. So perhaps that whole market is just going to look very different. And next, perhaps next time there is a wave of investment, uh, once the dust has settled after Brexit, at some point in the next few years, there will be a wave of investment in food operations and serving people food. But whether that's chain restaurants in leisure leisure complexes or chain restaurants on high streets is yet to be seen, isn't it? You know, chain restaurants on what high street? I don't. We don't know what the high street's going to look like or how people are going to be using it. That question will probably have a different answer every six months for the next two or three years while the market just finds its feet and while people's habits shift. But then who knows, you know, we, three years ago, someone came to me in the office and said, there's this thing called Deliveroo they're going to deliver sandwiches for us and I said you've got to be joking no one's going to order a sandwich and pay £2.50 on top of it to have it delivered we're not signing up for that I literally I I dismissed it and it was pursued and I said okay we'll try it in one site and I was proven right for three or four or five months £100 a month told you told you it's never going to work and then suddenly it jumped and then suddenly it jumped again and that's only three years ago we started with them, I think, maybe. And then, but then obviously, now I've said earlier, we know we, we equal a store's revenue out of delivery service. So I was taken by surprise by that. You know, so in three years' time, there's probably going to be another huge disruption that, that we haven't even touched on because we haven't seen it yet. That's exciting and maybe presents an opportunity. We just don't know yet. Is it uh, become very different to operate from when you started out in 2011 to now? Is that a very different environment to operate beside you know we are in this situation right now but in general how to operate you know your food business have you really changed and reinvented yourself a couple of times over the years the 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 nuts and bolts of the core operation are largely unchanged really the supply chain works in much the same way it has done in terms of what you know the markets through which our main product you know product lines are coming from the way that our kind of hub and spoke bakery operation works is still the same We've considered changes to that, but we've ended up not changing it because it just hasn't made sense from a from an operations point of view. So, yeah, the, nut, the nuts and bolts, the kind of basic operation of the business is largely unchanged. Really, it's about how we've talked about the business and about how we've brought people into the business and about how we've shared our story. And we've had to get much more nimble in terms of product development and changing our menus and things like that, because actually for a long time, the menu didn't change from year to year. Perhaps even some some years there would be no price change. It would just, you know, 18 months would roll without a price change because the market was so steady in terms of supply chain. We didn't really need to change our pricing. So we didn't. That's not the case at all now. Our prices change frequently. Our supply chain and our supplier kind of network changes more frequently than it used to um, just to remain competitive. And our menu does change probably quarterly with small changes happening all the time. We've had to get more nimble, but I don't see that as the core nuts and bolts of the operation. They're the kind of, they're, they're the, they're the, that's marketing really. Um, the core operation is is largely unchanged. So it's interesting you're saying with prices and, and the change in the supply chain, because uh, I guess you also, like many other fields now, Brexit is one thing, but also very hot summer. And in general, just in massive price increases in the market, maybe up mm. to nine, ten percent this year mm. uh, since the first of January. I guess is that, is that a big threat to you, or how are you actually dealing with these uh, massive increases? Thinking back to our pricing, our pricing strategy over the last couple of years, we actually had our retail prices actually went up more in the preceding twelve months than they have during this year. 
I mean, that's largely because we held off price changes in the in the period preceding that because we felt the market couldn't take it. So we held off price changes. And then during the following year, we had more consistent, small incremental price changes to allow our margins to catch up with reality. And then this year, actually, we felt that we were priced at the, at the top end of the market. So throughout the course of this year, we've had cost increases that we've had to actually absorb because we felt that our pricing point has been at the kind of top end of the market or what the market, what we think the market can take. Actually, our pricing strategy has been challenging this last year to get that balance right. And actually, a lot of those price increases you've been talking about there have just we've just had to absorb, which has an obvious impact on our margin. It's a constant balancing act between what we feel our consumer will take and what we know we're having to pay for our major lines of dairy products and you know and uh dairy products have you uh gone more plant-based there's a lot of people that's yeah. gone that's the vegan trend yeah as they call it but i think also there's a need carl from mushroom oil talked a lot about it that fish is getting so expensive that you yeah. actually need to subsidize to to more plant-based yeah. uh, meals to actually just run a profitable business is that also the case for you guys that you looked into these products not only because it's a trend mm. right now but only you have remember five percent of the population is vegan mm. So your market is probably bigger than that. Have you have you made some some changes that actually reflects that into the business becoming more plant based? Mm, completely. We started off by being a little bit ahead of the curve, um, and that was led actually because I changed my own diet. I read I, I as a, as a runner, I read a book written by a, a, an athlete who I was really inspired by. I wanted to read his running story. I had no idea how he ate and cooked his food, but throughout the book he told stories about the food he was eating while he was training and r- racing. It turned out he was a chef and he was vegan. So at the end of every chapter was a recipe. So I was at home thinking, I'm going to try that. That looks really nice. So I was cooking this food. And after every chapter, there was another recipe. So every few days, I was cooking another recipe. And I realized after two or three weeks, I'd changed my diet without any plan to whatsoever. And I've been a, I'd been a meat eater all my life. And so I found myself eating almost a vegan diet. I was still eating eggs a little bit, but I thought, actually, it's easy to cut those eggs out of my breakfast and it's easy to cut that, um, oh, whatever else I was using at the time. But I, it, and I and I didn't really drink milk much, so I cut out cheese and I cut out eggs. I found myself on a plant-based diet and was really enjoying it. And then I started to understand more about the impact, the environmental impact of, of farm rearing of animals and so on. And I thought, actually, this feels like a really good choice. I felt good about it. And I could see that in, in our business, I thought, actually, there's nothing for me on our menu now I want to eat this food and there's nothing on our, on our menu. There was a few things, but very, very small amounts. So we very quickly introduced um, a plant-based menu. This is going back two and a half years. So when we introduced our vegan menu then, we were lauded by the vegan bloggers across the city as being, you know, amazing bagel man's done, done this vegan menu and there was loads of fanfare about it. And we had loads of people visiting the store and talking about it. And, and we were really proud of that step that we had taken. And then over the next six or nine months, it became a thing. Suddenly everyone was talking about switching to a plant-based diet. There was loads of demand for it. So we realised that this was a big trend that was starting to emerge. So we've just continued to enhance that. And now recently we've relaunched a new, a kind of slightly more elaborate vegan menu with more premium offerings on it. We're now producing in-house, we're producing more plant-based fillings of our own rather than buying stuff in because we've realised that we can do it better than a lot of the products we were buying. So there's been quite a big food development investment in that. That has its upsides, obviously, because we're now producing food for ourselves that we're really proud of and our team know that it's all homemade and our customers are really excited about that as well. So we have that available. Uh, We're launching a new brunch menu soon and we've made sure that that's, it's almost 50-50 plant-based dairy and meat. And that's just the natural way for us to to do things now. And what we're finding is that when we put these products out for sale, 
they're not just being bought by people who identify themselves as being vegan or plant-based diet they're being bought by everybody because they just look nice and they and they and people feel good when they eat them so um and people are talking really positively about those choices that they're making oh yeah i'm not a vegan but i really like this and they and they keep buying it um so actually the number of people buying those things off our menu is greater way greater than the five percent that's talked about as being you know the population if you like we actually a few months ago we had to go through a process of almost re-engaging with our meat friendly customers and our you know those people who want to make those choices and, and have sausages and have the salt beef you know salt beef for us is one of our premium most exciting most attractive one of the kind of obviously a very authentic bagel filling so's smoked salmon and cream cheese these are not plant-based or vegan but they're a massive part of our business and we actually neglected them for a while we talked so much about our vegan menu we forgot to talk about these things where we've got hundreds of customers who love it and buy it every day so we've just had to rebalance so that we talk we talk as much about all those things as we do about our plant-based stuff now with the idea really of not alienating anybody and we're not judging anyone if you want to come and eat salt beef or smoked salmon great we're really really pleased to serve you because there can be quite a bit of judgment around those choices as well and we want we're really careful not to allow that to creep in that's just been about finding the right balance so what you're saying in a way you mentioned a bit earlier as well that you have a responsibility for the environment and the community and things like that do you think that's a, a core winning area to focus on as a restaurateur as you go forward you need to focus on things like that to have a successful business you know what not only a successful business but if we're going to be successful living on this planet we've got to change the way that we treat the environment one way we can do that really positively is by reducing the amount of manufactured farm meat that we're producing so you know the restaurant industry consumer choice i mean it's going to be led by consumer choice really we need to because businesses are only going to react when consumers demand it more and more we don't want to preach to anybody but personally we believe that that's a direction that we should be taking. And I know that Carl, you'd mentioned Carl from Moshimo's talks. He's talked quite openly about how his business possibly in a year or possibly two years time won't have any fish in it because they're making this plant-based choice. And I, and I applaud that. I think it's, I think it's, it's bold. And there have been moments in time over the last year where we've kind of actually shared that view, like maybe actually how long is it going to be before we stop selling any meat or how long is it going to be before we stop selling any cheese? You know, these, things so um you know those those aren't things that are about to happen for us but they're very much they're very much in our minds yeah and i guess it's it also is is, as you said it's not neglecting the people that actually want to to treat themselves for for Mm. some meat but also actually make it available but actually maybe educate people as you said about the impact on their own body and the planet yeah and the generations to come i I totally agree we have a very important task there as as a food business again when it comes to tackle food waste and things like that so coming back to one of the last thing I want to talk to you a bit about is technology. There's a lot of talk about technology at the moment in this industry and that's going to save the industry, would some say. I think it's a very pompous claim. How do you see technology's role in restaurants? Because restaurants, in my view, have been notorious, very slow of adapting and taking technology in as part of their operation. Mm. How's your view on that? Cooking food's quite analogue, isn't it? That's perhaps why restaurants are behind the curve with technology, because actually in a you know traditionally in a restaurant you've got a till or a calculator or and some internet we now have things like Deliveroo so you know there is more of a technology influence on a restaurant business than there's probably ever been before but if you think about the national businesses the the national chains are famously data-driven businesses Pret is 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 basically a data business you know they make their marketing decisions and their purchasing decisions and their customer acquisition decisions 
they probably make their recruitment decisions based on data. So there's obviously a massive technology side to a business like that. A business like ours can't afford that kind of investment. So, you know, we have high tech till system that can tell us all kinds of information about the products that we're selling. And we've got our own app, which can teach us a little bit about customer behavior, but not as well as we'd like it to. The technology that's affecting us biggest is the app based delivery services like Deliveroo. That's not our technology. We don't have, they're not our customers. So we can't get any customer insights from those services they hold all that information and don't share it with us i mean things like you know job disruption from automation in the bigger chains i I guess you could foresee a time when you know you might have a dark kitchen producing gbk burgers that hasn't had a human hand involved and you know going out on a drone or a or you know a bot that drives up the pavement and knocks on your front door and hands it over um you know those things the technology exists for all these things you know it'll only be a matter of time before it's economically viable the other day I was at a conference actually and I was handed a bag of Lego and I was asked to build various models to express challenges and opportunities within the business. And at one point I actually built a little drone out of these Lego Lego pieces and used it to tell the story of technology affecting a business like ours and how, you know, I used to joke a few years ago about how what we actually need is a drone flying around Brighton dropping bagels into people's front gardens. I, th- I think actually we're not too far from that kind of thing being real. If Amazon has their way, you know, it's not the kind of thing we can invest in, but it's the kind of thing that will be happening. Yeah, and there's even talk about companies like Amazon with the technology and supply chain are now going into building restaurants, like high street restaurants, because they know exactly on that street with that data what it is that they need to provide. So uh, in a way, that's quite a competitor to get Mm. From from all the competitors you could get on the high street, that's probably one of the most dangerous ones. You can see what it's done to retail and, and closing yeah. and, and technology and so on. On our podcast, we always have a question in the end of the podcast that people are on. So, uh, so if you were able to give you know like one advice to somebody either the one to enter the food business or thinking about taking a career there, what would that be from your age year? But I would say also before that, you also had experience with, you know, the experience economy. What would, what would that one thing be to have a successful journey? So thinking from the point of view of young people entering the job market, I think find an employer who's going to focus on your whole skill set, not just teach you how to make the food they want to sell, make the coffee that they want you to sell, or do the, the washing up in the way that they want you to wash up. You know, get find an employer who's going to think about all of your skill set, how you communicate, how you fit into a team, how you uh, express yourself how you manage how you lead because they're actually the skills that are going to take you all the way and get you into a role that's probably more fulfilling than one where you know then if you don't have those skills and for people who want to get into the food industry from a more entrepreneurial point of view well I think it's all going to be about you know if someone's got some ambition to set up their own food business it's going to be all about their niche it's going to be all about their product I hear lots of people lots of people approach me at events and say oh, I'm thinking about starting a food business and they've written whole business plans but they haven't cooked any food yet. Actually, forget about your business plan because if you can't make your food, your business plan doesn't mean anything. So the kind of concept of minimum viable product is really prevalent in what we do. You know, go to a street food market, start making one of the multiple things you have in your head and hone it and get it right and get customer feedback, get it into the hands of people who want to eat it and let you know what they think. Find a price point that works, find a supply chain for that one thing. And then once you've got one thing that you can see a business opportunity in, then maybe you can think about your second thing. Yeah, baby steps, get feedback, develop your products 
and worry about writing a business plan later. Well, that was a great advice, Anthony. Thank you very much for being here at the uh, Hospitality Maverick podcast. We really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully we're going to have you on another one because there's a lot of interesting stories below what you already talked about Mm. today. But thank you very much for coming. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Anthony, for sharing your story and experience of leading one of Brighton's most loved food concepts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, review, share, or even better, tell us what you think. How can you successful expand the hospitality business without compromising the culture that made it special in the first place? As always, thank you, Laura from Let's Talk Video Production, for your help making these podcasts awesome. We hope you have enjoyed today's Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingser. Tune in next time for another industry interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us on hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening and be maverick.